Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, let the hearing of your word be blessed today, so that the words you send from my mouth will not come back empty, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent them. Amen. She had been diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. I wasn't sure what ALS was. I knew it was bad. She sat upright in an overstuffed armchair, and I sat on the couch across the room from her, just on the other side of the coffee table. Although I had only met her as she would go through the line after a worship service, we began our talk like we had known each other forever. It was a quick connection. Toward the end of our time together, I asked her what it meant to be diagnosed with ALS. Very politely and firmly, she said, You will have to look it up. I do not want to talk about it. As I stood to leave, we had scheduled another visit for the next Monday. I asked if she would like to pray. She said she would, and I walked over to the chair, and not knowing what to do or how she felt, I asked her if it would hurt if I touched her and held her hand. She told me it would not hurt but that she could not hold my hand in return. I witnessed in the coming months as she went from the armchair to an electric wheelchair that she controlled to a regular wheelchair and then to the hospital bed in which she died. She lost all motion in her hands, then her legs, then her arms, And then all control of her entire body was lost, except for the ability to slightly move her head. She began to lose her voice. It became a quiet whisper, and in December, when I was in the hospital where her bed was fitted with a tube placed close to her mouth, every time we'd leave, we'd have to make sure that tube was next to her mouth so she could blow into it and activate the nurse's call button. In one of our last visits, she gave me instructions for her celebration of life service. A nurse had come in and taken her vital signs, and I wrote them down in a notebook that we were keeping. She then whispered toward me, Take notes, me, We were about to embark on the last time she would have control and would be able to direct what she wanted accomplished. Sure, I said, as I emptied her wheelchair of its contents, a prayer shawl and some fuzzy slippers. I rolled it to her bedside, close to her face, and took a seat with a pencil and notebook in hand. Joshua, she began. 
and then followed with other scripture references, certain hymns that she liked, a short statement that she wanted me to say, and finally a plea, not read obituary. I looked at her and I said, people read obituaries at funerals? And she nodded. She had been a funeral director in her previous community, and she said, yes. I said, I won't read yours. We will celebrate. She died five days later, and we did celebrate her life. It was a grand celebration. We celebrated her healing, her faith, and her eternal life with God. When I read the scripture that we have shared this morning, I think of her. I think of a life cut short, wishing I had been able to know her better, longer, deeper. And how she affected my life, though, has continued to this day. I decided to do my doctor of ministry work on pastoral care and counseling to the ALS patient and caregiver. We talked about it, and the January after she died, I began my work. I went for two weeks to Louisville. There were classes and cohort meetings for the next three years, and then there was the project. I met with people and caregivers who were affected by the ALS diagnosis. I met a woman who proudly and boldly proclaimed, ALS sucks. She even had t-shirts with that written on it. She knew without a shadow of a doubt that when it came time, she would not get a feeding tube. Then there was the the grandfather of two young college students who had a feeding tube and had been intubated. He was able to maneuver the wheelchair again just through the slight movement of his head with a nozzle that was right here. His grandchildren would come over after a week in college and share with him all the experiences of college. When I met with him and his wife in their home, she had a pulley system and a track system that was on the ceiling so that she could get him out of bed and using that track system, take him to the bathroom. One track went to the toilet, one to the shower, one to the sink. She showed me how she would get him dressed in the morning. And they laughed about the life that they were living then amidst all this machinery and the work that she had to do. There was the young mother of three boys and the widow of a grandmother. The man that I met that was one of the few who had inherited the disease. So many lives that affected mine. We are fortunate that we live in a resurrection period where we know that Jesus' death on the cross His sacrifice for us was for the forgiveness of sins. We know now what they did not know then when Mark wrote this scripture. We know that disease is not a punishment for sin. 
Yet then, that's what it was. Four friends of a man who could not walk were willing to go to great lengths for their friend. You know, they had to be friends, right? Who else would do what Mark has described? No one, no stranger would really take that kind of effort. However, nowhere in any of the three Gospels, not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that tell this story, do any of the writers bear witness that the men who carried the mat were friends of that paralytic? Let's set the scene here. Jesus has been to Nazareth and been rejected. He has begun his Galilean ministry. He's taught people, we read in scripture before this story, and they're amazed that he speaks with authority. He's called a demon out from a man. He's preached in synagogues. He healed Simon's mother-in-law from a high fever. He's called some of his disciples and healed a leper. And now, because of all of those activities, in a short period of time in Mark, Mark gives us the story rather quickly, Jesus has the attention of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. And the crowd, the people, they want to hear him, they want to see him. Everybody in Capernaum is talking about this new guy, this Jesus. So they're packed in this house right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The doors are blocked. The windows have got to be full of people that are leaning in. The crowd outside wants to be lucky enough to just get a glimpse. There's pushing and shoving. You know, it's kind of like when you go to one of those Christmas parades and you get there four hours early, right? So you can have the right spot that your children can see or your grandchildren can see the parade. And then all these people start coming and they crowd in around you. They want your spot. And then that big person comes and stands right in front of you. And your child can't see anymore. And if any candy gets thrown, they're not going to get any of it. Oh, and if they miss that stuffed animal, it's just going to be terrible. So we're pushing and we're shoving and we're holding on to our space. Imagine that in Capernaum in a house by the Sea of Galilee. Wanting to be so close to Jesus. That there's that pushing back, saving our spot. We cannot share. We can't give up our space. It's our spot. It's where we're comfortable. We need to see this Jesus who can teach us, who can heal us. We cannot make room for others because then there might not be room for us. So four people climb to the roof, dig through the roof, dig through the layers of mud and straw and rock, and a hole appears before Jesus. Now just place yourself in that place. You're standing there, you're sitting there, and there is Jesus sharing the word of God. And all of a sudden, there's this dirt clog that lands next to you or on your shoulder. 
There's that piece of straw that floats down and you watch it float down. The rocks are going to hit the ground. The floor is most likely made of tile, so it's going to make this loud sound. And Jesus keeps sharing the word of God. He could not have been oblivious to it, right? I mean, first off, he's God, so he knows what people are doing. And then there's all this commotion. I mean, even, even if it's not falling on him, people are sitting there and they're trying to dust it out of their hair or wipe it off their shoulders. Stay out of the way of the rock that's coming down. This is no little hole. A man is on a mat to be lowered down. Can you imagine if we looked up here now and all of a sudden pieces of the ceiling started falling down? But Jesus remains present. He remains approachable. Speaking that word to them, he doesn't move. You see, this is not only a story of Jesus' power to heal. It is truly a story of Jesus' power to forgive our sins. To stay present. To be focused. What would it take for us to have the kind of faith that we would do that much work to bring someone to the healing power of Jesus? What can we do to share and to show people that their sins are not greater than God's grace? When a circumstance seems insurmountable, one like an ALS diagnosis, where is Jesus? And how do we have the relationship, the tenacity, the bold compassion to be the church for those who are seeking God? To know that Jesus is present and approachable. And we have to ask the question about our scripture today. Were these men friends and then chose to serve together? Or were they men who saw the need and joined together to serve? This is not only a story of a building or a place or having ramps or having places for wheelchairs. This is a story of us making ourselves available to everyone and making room for all. You, Dolphin Way United Methodist Church, have done it well. There are pamphlets and brochures all over the lobby about times that you can serve and classes that you can take and small groups that you can join. I have to admit that I went up toward the upper room this morning to see how it was going with the new men's group, and I was going to peek in, but it was pretty crowded and it looked like y'all were pretty serious, and I didn't want to interrupt. 
But what a joy it was to stand outside that room and know that there was a place for people who had not met before. To look across the hall and to see Reverend Bates teaching a Dolphin Way 101 class to people who are interested in becoming a part of this church family. To walk down the hall and see the children learning from volunteers who were giving their time to what I call herding cats. You know, you think you have control of the children's moment, but you never do. And it's really awfully um, interesting that we think we might because the children have got all that control. The energy that they were showing, the artistic ability that they were showing as they paid attention. And then as excitement grew in the room and they got more and more talkative and the teacher says, if you can hear me, put your finger on your nose. If you can hear me, put your finger on your head. And there was quiet. And they learned that God's power gives them everything they need to lead a godly life. This afternoon, your vision team is going to meet with representatives from the United Methodist Communications to begin a year-long project. It is going to help you all as you learn to communicate inside and then also beyond. But you're also going to be an example for other churches as they put this together as a how-to approach the community. One of the results will be great outreach. And what that says to me is it could get so crowded in here that some may resort to making a hole in the roof in order to be close, to get inside. Remember that scene at Capernaum? People were so selfishly focused, four men carrying a mat with a man on it were not observed, and they had to get creative. We cannot be so selfishly focused that we don't see the need of the rest of the world, the community that surrounds us now. There is a wonderful history at Dolphin Wang of community outreach and disciple-making. But this history, this story of Dolphin Way does not break out into the future without people who are committed. Committed through a personal relationship with and faith in Jesus Christ. People who are open to the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit so that we can make room for all. That when we're tired, we have that energy where we can make extra effort for others, even people we do not know, and with people we may not know. It was not an easy task to knock on her door that February afternoon. 
But our faith in God's promises was a constant reminder to her and to me that life is easier when we do it together as church. We are church today as we worship God. And for Robbins and Nell, they know as we know that life is better when we are the church. When we are praying, and this week your chapel will be open, when we are preparing and delivering meals, there is an ice chest on the front porch of the Sims home. When we are leading meetings, even when we are preparing and preaching a sermon, we make that extra effort, not because we have to, but because we want to. We want to be as close as we can to this Jesus who offers forgiveness of our sins. And when we get that close in that personal relationship, we can't help but want to go into the world and share his love with others. He is available. He is ready. He has forgiven. Amen.